As a graduate of the Ontario public school system, I remember spending a lot of class time learning about plants, animals, and ecosystems. I felt like the message was always, the environment is fragile, don't mess it up. Although it was never clear to me what I was doing right or wrong to that effect. My elementary school teachers went the extra mile and not only chastised us for littering on the playground, but also for putting recyclable juice boxes and things like origami scraps anywhere but the recycling bin where they belong. Fast forward to now in early adulthood, where I'm still a recycling abiding citizen, but meanwhile, I'm hearing from seemingly everywhere that the earth is doomed, earth is warming, corals are bleaching, crops are failing, and I'm sitting here with primarily a feeling of guilt. Did I eat too much beef? Have I taken too many flights? Did I not recycle or compost as well as I could have? On today's podcast, my wonderfully talented and knowledgeable guest, Carl Tutton, plays a bit of climate anxiety therapist for me. We get fairly deep into the weeds of his area of expertise, being sustainability management. In fact, he has a master's on the topic and is pursuing a PhD in the same. In this conversation, Carl enlightens me to how design decisions are made in consumer electronic space. Spoiler alert, profit usually trumps all. And how decisions can and should be made in a way that not only benefits the environment, but also the bottom line. Overall, this may be the most educational and enriching conversation I've ever recorded. Now, unfortunately, there was a bit of a technical mishap that resulted in only the microphone in front of me getting recorded, but try not to let that take away from the wisdom and passion of PhD candidate Carl Tutton. PhD student at the University of Waterloo. Uh, my area of interest is uh, researching the design of consumer electronic devices like cell phones and laptops, portable devices and some desktops. And my uh, raison d'être has evolved from doing my master's degree in e-waste uh, study in Ontario. And I did my undergraduate degree at Carleton in very general environmental studies, which is a lot more policy. It was a lot more looking at uh, the way that humans interact with the built environment. And now I have very much specialized on the design side. And uh, that's, that's my professional background. And I suppose my more social background is that I am a amateur chef and... I'm very much involved in the kind of DIY and repair community. Um, I love building anything I can get my hands on, and I love uh, projects that involve learning new skills. So that's that's my my internal drive. So. Well, build you do. You look <laughs> around uh, this living room and you scan from your uh, stand on stand up desk in the corner of the room to this coffee table that we're settled at that you built yeah 
and uh, the 13 terabytes, I'm guessing, is going through the server that you've built downstairs? Yeah. <laughs> so my, my dad and I built a server rack for audio hardware when I was in grade nine. And I thought that I was going to get a lot more heavily involved in audio engineering when I was younger. And I did as a hobby, but it never really went further than that. But uh, it was worth it to save all the space in the basement because <laughs> we were starting to stack uh, a lot of heat emitting things in the basement. And, you know, we were building amps and we were building uh, relay boards and switches and things so that you could like split headphones off using a, a panel kind of thing. So it was getting out of hand very quickly, as is uh, the, the case when you work with an industrial designer for a dad. So we built a rack, and I ended up using it as a server rack, and now I keep uh, a huge data storage and game server system in my basement, and I have to pay more for the power bill. <laughs> but it's a lot of fun. I, you know what kind of surprises me? That you didn't choose to study engineering in undergrad. I feel like Every time I interact with you, it's like speaking with another geeky engineer. And yeah. it, it shocks me that we're, we're talking about gain, we're talking about notch filters, we're talking about uh, the resonance frequencies, and we're doing this with only one engineering degree between us. Yeah. I ended up doing a lot of the kind of conventional engineering things as hobbies, so like... Uh, learning how to 3D model, learning how to use audio tech stuff. Um, I'd say audio tech is, is, a, is a hobbyist community as well as an engineering thing, but certainly the base understanding of like waveforms and you know core electrical engineering stuff. Uh, I just learned it on the side, but when, when I was younger, I wanted to go into architecture or designs. That's what my parents did. But I was really bad at math, like growing up and the the classic well i guess if i can't do math i can't do those things kind of kicked in mm. so i picked up what i needed to to kind of do my tasks and i've always been a fan of just keeping on learning so i, I just learned how to do what i wanted to do so i don't have a huge knowledge of the uh nitty-gritty of, of how to do the math for these things i i don't know how to properly run a model or whatever for a room like acoustic engineers would but uh, I learned enough so that I could find out what would I get the best bang for buck how could I record my friends in the basement and not sound like crap and that was the the bar to which I said same thing with like servers and whatnot it's like how can I get by and have something that I can continue to tinker with for a long time and keep learning about it that was always the the goal and I think that's that's often what I we advocate for on this podcast self-initiated learning teaches you what you need to know and not so much of the fluff i'd be lying if i said that these models were my favorite part of yeah. of engineering i think a big part of why i would flex being an engineer at all most of it would just to justify four years of bullshit yeah of I mean, a good a good portion of that. You know, there are some good lessons learned along the way. Um, but I think an engineering degree or any degree, for that matter, really just represents the fact that you put up with four years of bullshit. Yeah, you're willing to you're willing to put in the time to learn how to learn at university, and you're willing to put up with or being inside of a system which 
is usually not optimized for the end user being the student to have any kind of fun. But, you know, I've been in academia for so long. I see, I see the merit, but I also see that uh, if your objective is to get usable skills out of it, like as a primary drive, it can be an enormous grind and uh, very disheartening to go through as well. And then when you exit, life is a lot more fun when you can learn on your own time. But it's valuable to learn how to be part of a system working in government or in a large corporation, as most people might end up doing coming out of an engineering degree. Mm-hmm. Um, that, yeah, that's, that's what the university might be imparting more than, more than most things. Yeah, sure to that. So the thing I wanted to talk about with you today was uh, something that's, I can't really say it's a passion of my own because it, it usually brings negative feelings. And I'm, I'm talking about rising sea levels. I'm talking about more frequent extreme weather. Yeah. I'm talking about our stockpiles of nuclear waste that we don't really know how to store. The plastic that was promised to us that was fully recyclable and is now no longer taken by the <laughs> people that usually take it. Uh, I'm talking about the climate crisis that... Some people, I'd say probably most people that I I would chat with will say, one day we're going to have a climate crisis. And I'm like, no, we're we're in a climate crisis. You know that storm that we had last weekend where I was in St. Jacob's, uh, the the farmer's market, and we got caught in a downpour. And I was watching this thing on the radar and I said, you know, I've never seen black on this radar before. I've yeah. seen I've seen orange. I've seen yeah. yellow. I've never seen black. It, it, it can't be. It can't be that bad. And there were tent poles flying around. I, I'm surprised no one got impaled. I was. I told my mom she was in, in town to visit that if you see tent poles flying around, it's like get down and cover your head. Yeah, we 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 don't see that a whole lot here. No, it was. Um... It was an astounding storm. It's really similar in uh, style to what we call a microburst. A microburst is a very localized, high-speed windstorm that typically has rain accompanying it as well. And I've been on the water sailing when we were hit by a microburst. And I was on a sail training vessel, and it was a hundred and something feet long, and it tilted it over 45 degrees. And we were head to wind, so we were in the most optimal position to not get hit by wind. And uh, it blew out the portholes, it flooded the entire lower deck with like a foot and a half of water, and then passed by, and the entire storm surge lasted maybe, you know, 15, 20 seconds. Very short. And we had the equivalent strength storm with the equivalent type of precipitation going on for several minutes over this uh, an area the size of most of southern Ontario. Uh, most of western Quebec was inf- impacted as well. Yeah, 11 people died. Like I read that on The Economist. Yeah. You know, I, I read The Economist Espresso, which is usually my digest of the biggest things that happen in world news. And so I'm reading about, you know, the war in Ukraine. I'm reading about... Taiwan and TSMC, and then I see an article or an entry for uh, the storm in Ontario that killed 11 people. Like, yeah, it was bad, but I didn't realize it made yeah. world headlines. Yeah, dude, we're getting we're getting hit. We're we're feeling the the 
the burdens of environmental damage now in this part of the world that's generally pretty sheltered from yes from environmental catastrophe yeah. there is certainly a, the the north south divide of the developing and the developed world where we are sheltered from those problems because we typically live in less extreme climates so we're not on the edge of much but uh, a simple way i often think about uh, global climate issues is that we have been adding more energy to the system and if you add more energy to the system you get more energetic events and so it doesn't mean that the global temperature will just rise a bit and everybody's going to be warmer it means that when it gets cold it might get colder when it gets windy it's going to get windier when you get one tornado now you're going to get 10 over the course of the next 50 to 100 years you don't get one small wildfire you get a big wildfire season yeah. Every single summer. Yeah, and it's uh, it's a good thing you mentioned that there's there's climate change that we think of as kind of emissions, broadly speaking, and then there's the climate change of changing forestry patterns to the extent that there's so much tinder on the ground in California and British Columbia and even in Ontario and Quebec where we've had these traditional forestry strategies that when something does go bad, we haven't just changed the atmospheric conditions, we've changed all terrestrial conditions and, and also hydrology of regions. So, yes, we, we have certainly made ourselves a very optimized storm when it comes to a lot of the ecosystems. That's an interesting way to look at it, that we've been adding energy to the system. It's like uh, the, the way I see it, and I think the way that they've, they try to teach it in, in primary schools is you have this ecosystem. If you mess up part of this ecosystem that usually is working in a nice homeostasis, then for at least temporarily, something is going to be off kilter. Yes. And we're not just taking like one Jenga block out of the tower at a time. We're constantly knocking them out. Yeah. And I don't know if a, a Jenga tower is the best analogy for what we're doing, but Concerns me, man. I think in the Western yeah. world, we're pretty blessed to not be worried every day about where, for most people, where food is going to come from, whether we're going to get eaten by some savage animal, killed by other technology-wielding primates. We, yeah, we have, we have few natural or human risks to us. But yeah, now, now we have a very real threat. And Things like this, you know, storm and the California wildfires, BC wildfires, and places like Lytton, BC are just wiped off the map because we, we simply can't respond fast enough. So, yeah, it, it, <laughs> we should be concerned, but, uh, you know, err air on the side of not panicking. But I, I find that tough to do. I, I feel like, yeah, so ever since I took the red pill and started reading about the environment, and listening to podcasts and it's it's fucking depressing man like yeah and i'm i'm someone that wants to have kids eventually yep. and i i feel like it's kind of a dick move first of all bringing another human being into this world we're already on a path to be like way overpopulated also to introduce someone into the world where i can't guarantee that they're going to have a better planet to live on than I did. In fact, at this trajectory, they won't. Yeah. They almost definitely won't. It's, uh, 
well-understood dilemma that, you know, ignorance is very much bliss when it comes to certain subjects. Uh, we don't deal well with existential threats to hope and the climate crisis we're going through is very much one of those. And the more you understand, the more bleak it seems. But I often have to remind myself that I am helping to address it in my own small way. And that whilst I am frankly not a hopeful person, I would, I would err on the side of reality and pessimism um, we need people to be somewhat uh, unrealistically hopeful because that is how we get new ideas and don't get stuck in uh, the circular thoughts of, of uh, giving up and depression due to existential crises. If you don't have those optimists, you're in a tough spot. I don't know if I can, in good conscience, tell somebody that things are going to be okay, but I think that I could tell somebody that, as with most crises, I think we're going to get to a point where we are forced to act because something has triggered the more immediate reflex that we seem to need as a society to react, and then we'll start to really fix things. But in the meantime, things are going to definitely get a lot worse before they get a lot better. Um, we are definitely the frog in boiling water, or oil as it were, right now, where, you know, until very recently, most people didn't think of climate change as a day-to-day -day threat. Mm -hmm. But I think that a lot of people are now. And there's certainly a lot of climate depression, especially in my field, that's for sure. I'm not even in your field, and I've yeah, I feel like I've I've got some of it. So let's let's talk about exactly that. Let's talk about your field. Mm. So yeah, um, yeah, what what I do that is not that. And right now, uh, I would classify myself as a, a PhD researcher, and I also am a teaching assistant at the University of Waterloo. And the the core of my work is understanding um, the best design practices to improve life cycle effectiveness and efficiency of consumer electronics. Um, I look at strategies on how we can implement that. I look at what has been done already, and I look a lot at the interplay between designers and firms, regulations, and the type of agency that people within these systems have in terms of implementing change, as well as, uh, to a lesser extent, the education of those actors. So my... Uh, goal is to learn about and then describe the major roadblocks to implementing well-understood best practice in the design community for these types of devices. So that that's the, if there's one output from my thesis, it's to address why we haven't had more action so far, despite the level of knowledge that we have. When we say design, are we talking about traditional product design? Design's a funny word, so I'm going to broaden it here. Uh, oftentimes, the people who are the designers for this are engineers, and they might not even be employed by the major company. So you'll have an industrial designer working at uh, Lenovo or Dell or Apple, 
and they're going to talk to product engineers as well. And so there's going to be interplay there. Those people are all designers. If the thing isn't in production yet, and they're coming up with a plan of production, then I'm interested in what they have to say, and I would classify them as part of the design team. Okay, understood. So it's yeah. it's pretty holistic design. It's yeah. from the planning stage through the very traditional design yes. and engineering process um, and through manufacturing yes, and maybe even end of life as well. Yeah, so a very, a very big part of design for consumer electronics, if you're looking at the like sustainable product design is what I would call the field that I'm in very specifically. So uh, SPD principles, uh, design for environment principles, but that... Yeah, it's more holistic, and it's also that when you don't have direct impact as a brand over your product on the the bulk of the design, you're you're contracting it out a lot of the time. You're doing bits and pieces of design when that uh, initial run comes back to you. So you might, as Lenovo, go to an OEM and say, original equipment manufacturer, and say, uh, I need a laptop that has these types of specs and is about this thin, and uh, it's for the gaming market. And then they're going to ship you five or six different models. You'll get some competition in the marketplace. And then you might have a design team that makes sure that it complies with your take-back policy. Maybe you need to make sure that uh, it can only take four days to get repaired. So it needs to have a certain amount of screws before it's considered, oh, there's too many screws. So you're going to do a bit of design augmentation, but you won't even have designed the whole product. So the way that we think about consumer electronics design is a more linear one, I think, for, for most people who would assume that, you know, uh, Dell looks at the drawing board and says we need a new laptop, and they draw it up and they send it off to the manufacturer. But it's often uh, a little bit more convoluted than that, and there are multiple stages of design going on. Uh, I mean, you're involved in hardware yourself, so you know that there's an iterative process to product design. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, for these companies, though, they might not even be involved in the quote-unquote first iteration. And through the entire process, their incentives might not in lo- align with what you would hope that they would be. You know, I, I learned about this quite recently. It made some pretty big splashes. I'm sure that you're a big advocate for the right to repair uh, with Apple. They were, for the longest time, designing their products and setting up their their repair business, their service business in a way to discourage third parties from repairing their products so that they can make more money, presumably, off yes. of repairing it themselves or selling consumers a brand new iPhone, AirPods, you have it. And up until very recently, was it just last year? Yeah. Or was it this year? It uh, was this year. It was this year. We got some right to repair bills, um, which were heavily advocated. One of the big advocates was the co-founder of iFixit. Um, yeah, and Kyle his, Weens. Kyle Weens. Yep, I yep. listened to him today. He was a his his story is is really cool. He worked a summer job in high school as a technician, an Apple repair technician, and then he bought himself an expensive MacBook, dropped it. It was he just broke the power cord and he couldn't repair it because he was missing the manual. And when he went to find the manual on the internet, he couldn't find it because Apple had leveraged the 
some legislation that was meant to prevent copywriting piracy of songs? Yes, it was the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. That's the one. And they, they leveraged that to prevent their service manuals from getting leaked out. So it's from acts like that, it's, it becomes very obvious what the intention is. Yep. And the, the impact on waste. You're in environmental engineering broadly. I, I took a course, and it was one of my favorite courses in engineering school, which was environmental engineering. It was a third year course where they taught us basically how to do LCAs. And LCA stands for life cycle analysis. And correct me if I'm wrong, but basically it's a way to tally up the effect of some product, be it a laptop, a car, a bicycle, whatever, from mining the raw resources needed to make that thing through the manufacture process, through the usage, through the end of life, which is what happens to your laptop. Usually it ends up in a landfill, I guess. I guess we'll talk about that. Yeah, that that definitely grinded my gears to learn that it was only this year that the most valuable company in the world was uh, going against (laughs) things that they've they've stood for. Yeah, they're... um... It's funny, so I'll start with a brief anecdote, but uh, my dad has run his own industrial design firm for about 43, 44 years, and he's just retiring this year, and he loves Apple. It's not necessarily any one aspect. It's the kind of look and feel and polish of their devices that he really likes, and we can all see the appeal of that. And one of the ways that they manage to get their devices to be that way is by having very vertically integrated design. Um, Apple recently developed their own processor technology. So now not only do they have control over virtually everything in their design process, they also have control over the core processing uh, power that they put into their devices which is not the case for uh, pretty much any other device. They, I mean, to be completely frank, they totally took most of their inspiration from the ARM processing system, the uh, A12 and the M1 and M1X and whatever they're on to now. Are all M1 based on Max. M1 Max. Which is two M1s taped next to each other. I love. Branding. On the same die. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. I mean, like, honestly, if you don't need, if you, you've already invented the expensive wheel, keep using the expensive wheel, but their ethos since the iPod was that uh, we can make a better device that is durable. They, They sell that a lot in their sustainability literature, let me tell you, that is durable, that is attractive, that is stylish. Um, And it works well with the software that further vertically integrated only works on their devices iOS or OS X, what have you. And they could only achieve that by having full control over their IP. And I'm using intellectual property here very broadly to mean their devices. So they don't want people upgrading or repairing their stuff because ostensibly this would interrupt the experience. And we know, to put it bluntly, that that is an entirely steaming pile of BS. Um, you can have a very good user experience and still have user upgradable parts because Apple used to do that. Um, my 2011 MacBook Pro was upgradable. 
you could put in a new SSD, you could swap out the DVD drive and put another SSD in, you could upgrade the RAM, the fans were easy to swap, and they were actually pretty generic fans. You could find them for a lower price. And I kept that laptop going for 10 years. And it finally died because the power delivery system conked out because my brother has a very fluffy cat and the laptop overheated. So oh, yikes. That's the end of that. But the kind of depressing part is that even though Apple has, yes, come around and, and seen the light, they so they finally have this response that is uh, limited categories of their products will now have parts support. Um, they have a very uh, decision-by-committee way of, of going about their repairs. Uh, you heard on the podcast that they ship you something like 30 or 40 pounds of equipment that is the best way to take apart a device, but then people like uh, the staff at iFixit and uh, Mr. Weens are able to do it for $35 and uh, a microwavable gel pack. That's right. That costs... With the watch. Yeah, like, you know, and and you have to use a a lot of uh, delamination and uh, adhesive heating technologies on a lot of their devices now because... They're fully soldered designs. No components are easily upgradable. Mm -hmm. So in the end, the cost to repair your device through the conventional method of getting it aftermarket parts from places like iFix is going to be cheaper. It's probably going to be faster because you don't need to wait for parts to arrive and things like that. And in addition, Apple is still very allergic to allowing their intellectual property to enter the wild. So you have to verify your components electronically with Apple after you've installed them, and it will check to see if they're legitimate, and I use air quotes around that, parts before it allows you to use your device. And if you were to use, for instance, phone parts from iPhone B and put them into iPhone A, you wouldn't be able to activate them. They have some sort of hardware DRM? They have DRM that is software and hardware, so it looks at the machine codes. So it's it's a tepid step in the right direction, but at the same time, they know that selling a new device is just so profitable that they're still going to drag their heels, even if they are forced to implement these kinds of changes. I think if we look at these these actions by big corporations, you, you step out a little bit and you try to look at a more macro view, it's, it, it's very obviously... They're optimizing their business behaviors for profit. And fair enough, that's what modern capitalism encourages them to do. And that's what legislation allows them to do for now. I mean, legislation has pushed them into this direction where they're shipping um, these fucking 50-pound briefcases around for people to... For a screen replacement. For a, for a screen replacement, yeah. uh, I feel like that whole thing where somebody came up with, "Hey, if we want, fine, we'll let them, we'll let them repair their screens, but they're gonna have to get a suitcase yeah. that most people can't lift up, and we're just gonna make it very difficult for them. So then, when they yeah. when they contemplate replacing their screen, they're gonna think, do I wanna do I yeah. wanna bring this thing back to UPS? Exactly. Uh, they are adding." you know, 60 grit sandpaper level friction to this exchange when the traditional repair community has created an extremely smooth and well-lubricated system of 
ordering a part online with very little extra. It's got minimal packaging. It just mm-hmm. ships you the screen in the bare minimum, and it costs very little because they purchase many of them. Most of what I'm concerned about are the actions of the firm directly, uh, internally making their systems better. And there is uh, absolutely an important gray market, an aftermarket, that to this day, and I know from industry insiders, is the most efficient way to fix a lot of devices, as well as maintaining parts availability. Many uh, major OEMs and brands, uh, I'll use the example of the, the major manufacturers. Manufacturers is broad here because sometimes the brands are the manufacturer, and many times they're not. Uh, HP, Dell, uh, Lenovo are the major ones, and Apple's a different cup of tea. Uh, in the design community in the Netherlands that I'm associated with, they call Apple Voldemort, so we can get into that later. <laughs> but those major PC manufacturers depend on the secondary market to buy a certain number of units after the initial run, so that there is a predictive curve, it's called a Weibull distribution, of parts available for the the tail end of this curve so that they know that there's going to be a a demand in five years for screens based on the the kind of demand that we've seen previously with similar devices. So they're actually depending on this gray market to keep everything functioning smoothly for the, uh, I'll call them inadvertent, sustainable activities. So when you make things more repairable, you encourage that gray market behavior because there's profit to be made. And then, if it's more repairable, people use their devices longer. If the barriers to entry for repair are low, and this is all this is all basically what iFixit was built around. That is their ethos: right. is making sure that you have access to those parts for as long as your device can function. When I when I first heard of the right to repair movement, I I just heard of it in name, and I wasn't really enlightened mm-hmm. to the the details. And I thought, honestly, frankly, at first. It, it, it sounded kind of self-righteous like mm. why you, you do have the right to repair like you you can pry your iphone open and try to fix it yourself but i've never owned an iphone so <laughs> I i've never i never actually tried to to fix uh replace a dead battery before i had a, a samsung galaxy i think the five the s5 mm. still had a back door that you could and pop off and there you can access your sim card and your battery which you can swap out which is fantastic i love that system um but for one reason or another probably for profit motives uh big firms have moved away from that and it's it's disappointing um, i mean i understand the movement better now and yeah. i think it's uh despicable <laughs> that <laughs> apple in the same breath is saying that they are you know, sustainability minded. And in another, they're shipping people 45 pound suitcases to, to repair their, their batteries. Can you imagine, can you imagine throwing out your car because the battery died? And it's how, uh, so the social science side of this, so you mentioned earlier that I'm kind of an environmental engineer. I'll put a caveat on that. That's not really because of how much of the, uh, anthropogenic side of things I'm looking at, at the human interaction. So we, uh, I am the mixed media studying this, the, the cross-curricular, as it were. So I, I look at 
the behavioral aspects to a certain extent. I'm not a behavioral scientist, but I look at the drivers uh, because they're all, they're very easy to model by looking at product use trends. So I have the the uh, blessed opportunity to analyze people's behaviors without actually analyzing people too much, which is really nice when That's you sweet. don't have to. Uh, get nitty gritty with that kind of stuff, right? You're inferring it through data, exactly. And yeah, the the kind of repairs that we expect for things versus the purchase price seems so out of whack. You can purchase a vehicle for uh, I am not a car person, but uh, you know, fifteen thousand dollars or something, and you expect it to last. Uh, you know, maybe you're reselling it and you're going to expect it to last with very little issues for four years. Or if you expect to keep it for a long time, you expect it to keep going with some maintenance and maybe one or two major repairs for about 10 years, something like that. And yet when we get a device that uh, as a flagship device might cost in Canadian dollars, like what, $1,400, $1,500 now? They're out there now. Yeah, and they're with inflation the way that it is, it'll probably breach the 2000 mark within, you know, five or six years. Uh, and so we're willing to accept that these are not durable goods. Um, when I'm analyzing use trends for different types of uh, consumer electronics, you look at the optimal use trend for a refrigerator and people do not conceptualize a refrigerator and a cell phone as the same thing at all, but they're worth the same amount of money. Oh fuck. Yeah. That you can buy a fridge for, you know, $1,500, $2,000 and your phone, if you get the higher end version is going to be, you know, order $1,500 at this point. Damn. And yet we expect it to be very difficult to repair and, uh, you know, people drop their phones all the time and you break the screen and a lot of people will look at that and go like, well, I can deal with that for a while, but you probably wouldn't deal with a broken door on your fridge. You would expect it to be repaired fairly easily with a screwdriver or you call a repair guy and it costs, you know, 150 bucks and you're, you're good to go. So I find it interesting that we don't even think about these things very similarly, despite the fact that Everything is becoming consumer electronics with the way that it's being built. Right. And the the price category is very similar. So, you know, it's a it's a dilemma. It's a huge dilemma. That's such a interesting way to frame it, because I've you're right, I would have never thought of a refrigerator and a flagship cell phone in the same category. You know, if yeah, if you had to replace your refrigerator every three years, every time you dropped your phone, you'd be yeah. you'd be pretty upset. Yeah, and you would you know run out of food. But <laughs> <laughs> the the cell phone is now uh, an integral part of our of our life. And yeah. uh, I hate to harp on the cell phone. The cell phone's an easily accessible idea to most people, though. But uh, I'm I'm almost more interested in the more outlier products at this point. The desktop computer, mm. which has been declining year over year which is actually a pretty good example of how you can build a platform and then have an upgradable system within it, although that has its own drawbacks. But yeah, the the market that we've created has altered our perception of value to the extent that we are okay with spending, you know, approximately 200 to $500 a year on a, on a product and then getting rid of it 
for zero value back, or maybe a bit, maybe you sell sell your cell phone to a friend after three years and you get like, what would you, what would you ask for a four-year-old cell phone? I, I, cell I phone? once sold a three-year-old cell phone to a co-op that was working yeah. uh, under me for a hundred bucks. Yeah. A hundred bucks. Yeah. So your, your value drop off was like, you know, three years down the road, uh, yeah, nine, 600 to 100. Yeah. So, okay. So yeah. That, so that's pretty good actually. But you know, maybe you're one of the millions of people who buys a new iPhone every couple of years. And so you go from $1,200 to, you know, one or $200. That's, that's an enormous drop off in value. You know, from a business perspective, it makes sense. It does make sense. Like if you, if you black box this whole thing and yeah. we weren't talking about cell phones, we just talked about purchasing a thing okay yes. it's a thing that people will will purchase at some interval yep. and this thing let's call it a widget a widget i like that yeah. let's call it a widget you purchase a widget every x years and this is what your business is built on this is how you make money for your shareholders who give you yep. you know your initial funding and you, you report to these people now if you can sell this widget at shorter intervals, wouldn't you do that? You always would. Like, why would you not? Yeah. You know, so I, I, I get it. I get it. But that doesn't stop me from getting upset. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a lot of literature. Uh, there, okay. So for, first, there's a concept called DFX, design for X. And you can design for assembly or disassembly, or repairability, or environment, or, you know, you can design for anything. Weaponization, doesn't really matter. But when you look at design for assembly to make the most units at the lowest cost, you sacrifice many categories. And business models within those other categories of product design are still very profitable. And right now we have a concept called a product service system, you know, product as a service or systematization. And maybe we're leading into this uh, in your thought process. And this is a way of avoiding selling new units every year and instead selling a service that goes with it. So you support right. your units for longer and thus you make fewer things. You have another inadvertently a sustainable action that's being taken. Mm -hmm. But then as a company, you don't need to invest so much in your physical infrastructure. You can invest in software infrastructure. Uh, you can invest in reverse logistics more and you can uh, tie people in as customers. That's right. And we see this enormously in the business computing uh, sector. And I mean, software as a service, software as a service. Exactly. And software as a service is the optimal model because there is no physical product yep. that needs to be shipped, at least, at least most of the time. You just need some servers somewhere. You yep. need some software engineers to write the code once yep. and make it more or less up to date. And yep. you're good. Just print money. Yeah. And the issue is there are only certain product categories that are really conducive to systematization like that. And <laughs> they're unfortunately almost antithetical to the most problematic products that we have today in the very thin and light laptops, 
uh, the all-in-one desktops, which are built basically like phones or laptops, tablets and cell phones, that those product categories, because they're a fast-paced technology, and we still put such an internal value on full ownership that this idea of not being in total control of your device for this environmental optimization devalues that device dramatically. And that's a, that's a huge issue right now. And we also see the issues with uh, non-full ownership and things like on the podcast they mentioned John Deere. And John Deere is a case study of product systemization that goes pretty aggressively too far for a lot of people's likings. Uh, and for context, the, the tractor company, John Deere, manufactures a lot of heavy equipment. And then they don't let people repair their own uh, equipment because they want to make money off of the repair system. That is where they're going to make the, the majority of their money. But it also means that people can't modify, uh, can't easily upgrade their components, and it's illegal to access the software, which now drives most uh, vehicles, and especially heavy vehicles. So things like that are stopping that system from taking off. Yep. But it is one solution that people propose that would reduce that unit count as a, as an optimization of capitalism. It's a way to temper the, the physical consumption, but increase profit margins over time. So there are, there are some solutions, but nothing right now for a lot of the conventional consumer devices. Yeah. The example that they gave in still the same podcast we're talking about, yep. uh, podcast episode discussed an example where a farmer would they have this maybe combine harvester during harvest season where you have a pretty small window of time where you have to get your crop otherwise it's going to spoil and then your entire season is moot you're not making any money you know your combine harvester fails you call john deere and they're like nope we can't tell you why this light is is blinking without sending you a technician and then you wait however long it takes to get that technician over during harvest season while he's yep. servicing many other people and he'll come over plug his laptop in and tell you oh this battery needs replacing and you're like well i could have replaced it myself and you're like well let me run back and get it for you and yeah it's it's definitely not optimal from a from a customer perspective, it's not yeah. optimal from uh, an environmental perspective. It's not optimal for like a net societal efficiency perspective. Mm. It's just like adding entropy to the system. It's like you have this random resistor in the system that doesn't need to be there. But yeah. <laughs> because it's there, it makes these people money and these people make the rules because yeah. they sell the things that you want and nobody else does. And So what's the... Yeah. What's the solution? What's the solution? Well, that's what doing this PhD is all about. Some of the solutions that we can kind of integrate into the design process today is an amount of comfort with slowing the pace of product development so that we can implement service systems so that they do make sense, so that they are profitable, and that people still maybe get a sense of ownership but it's the correct balance between ownership and the company's intellectual property reservations 
so that you're going to have a phone that lasts five or six years because you're going to get a phone that performs the same over five or six years. Slowing down the release cycle so that only one phone is released every three years so that you have the rolling updates that aren't the rapid iterative ones where, you know, I think you'd be hard-pressed to tell me what the major differences between a phone from even 10 years ago and today is in terms of user interaction. Is it actually different? Are we actually getting, you know, let's say you, you're an average Canadian and you purchase a phone every uh, 3.2 years or so, you know, are you actually better off for having purchased ostensibly three phones? Is it, or is the kind of touchscreen with uh, phone functionality, can get internet anywhere, Wikipedia box, and a camera on it, <laughs> has that really changed? Uh, getting people comfortable with that is difficult because we have a we have an incentive system, the full capitalist system right now, of rapidly iterating, making as many as possible. But uh, slowing down can be just as profitable is something that we have learned from a lot of product development, but it takes a lot of systems shift. So one of the, one of the ways we can address it is by slowing down and supporting things for longer. And making sure that people feel value in those things. Because that perception of value, I've indicated that ownership is like a huge part of the perception of value of a device. Making sure that we replace that or augment that so that people still get that sense. And, and then move forward with uh, dematerializing that product stream as much as you can. Those are some of the changes we could ostensibly make in the next 5 to 10 years. So. And when we say ownership, we're talking about from a psychological yeah. point of view. The is it the same type of ownership that you'd be proud of if you own a home, own a car? Like yeah. say, like I own that. What, what what do you mean by ownership? Yeah. So when people purchase something, um, there's a high that we get from purchasing a thing. The oh, yeah. value of newness is simultaneously very sharp, but very fleeting. We often get over, and I'm quoting a, a CBC report, and I, I, you know, if I were to put this in a citation, it doesn't have a date, but it was within the last couple of weeks. I was listening to a psychologist that indicated that that fleeting feeling of newness only lasts a couple of days at most, and then you settle into your routine. So maybe there's the, a deeper cultural shift that we need to begin to address. I mean, of course we need to address it, that the newness isn't actually as valuable as you think. And it's a very uncomfortable subject to broach with people that what they think they want isn't something that they really want because they're, they're actually losing value. Um, you know, they might get that new thing, but it's so minorly better in the, in the medium to long term than the thing they currently have that what they're really paying for is a quick dopamine spike. So that value of ownership is tied up in that as well. There's the idea that you can do whatever you want with something. But then when you look at the functional perspective of, you know, a vehicle, it actually doesn't make much sense to perhaps own a car if you live in a city. The value of the car is in the utility of going from point A to point B. But a car only lasts 6,000 hours. And most of the time that it exists, it's sedentary. Is that the best use of that car? Do you feel the value of owning it? 
for people who buy like uh, a Miata or a Mercedes, they might really value just seeing that car in their ownership. But for the vast majority of people, I might argue that what they really value is transportation. So shifting that to the valuing of the service rather than the valuing of the product is important. And understanding why people value ownership, which is usually a deeply embedded cultural notion that uh, having more is better. Um, and maybe there's some, you know, deep psychology of uh, hoarding that we have as humans, mm -hmm. that keeping resources around for later in the event of scarcity is good to have. But I'm not so sure that that's as applicable. So the, the, those are the kinds of ideas that are tied up in the ownership discussion. I like that. I, you know. and, and I appreciate that you name drop my, uh, my favorite neurotransmitter. Oh, uh, do Dopamine. Oh yeah, it's a good one. Yeah. I wish I had more of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dude. There, I think there's a lot of um, lots to learn from the neurobiology realm. Yeah. I, I think the solution to this whole thing is going to be as multidisciplinary as how we got here. Exactly. And how we got here was catalyzed by capitalism, but it needed to be made possible through engineering ingenuity yes you know somebody had to come up with a way to shovel coal into a fire heat up some water and the last person yeah exactly so that's right and asking people like i mentioned earlier it's really hard to tell people to slow down it's really hard and that's uh it's like talking to drug addicts yeah yeah Secure so me out in this one. I mean, you're nodding, but <laughs> maybe <laughs> listeners hear me out. This is when when you I, and I've I've interacted with drug addicts before, and they in their sober state when they're maybe like coming down from their high, they know very well that like this thing that they're taking is probably not great for them. But then once they get that first hit, it's like fuck, I got it, I gotta get that next hit, and. Someone on the harder drugs, like we're talking about methamphetamine and, and heroin, once they've like had this thing before, and I think in methamphetamine consumption, they talk about chasing the dragon or something. It's this intense, incredibly large uh, dopamine spike yes. that you get from uh, like orders of magnitude higher than cocaine, which is already orders of magnitude higher than any natural form of uh, of dopamine response, uh, the highest one usually comes from orgasm. Uh, so you know, meth users will be will be chasing this thing, and then I, I I pity these people. But when you see a lot of people who are really in the bottom rungs, they're really you know struggling. It's it's because they're dedicating all of their energy of their being to get another hit because yeah. they're wired to this dopamine response. And now in, in this analogy, you just substitute methamphetamine for something a little bit more tame, yeah. which is a new car or a new cell phone or the new this year. And this idea of the new this year was very much a post-war idea. And it is eerily similar as you indicate to drugs because you get that high. And, you know, you can't tell somebody who's been working their whole life 
on the entire process of new next year to suddenly shift without a systems shift as well. Uh, I attended the Industrial Design Society of America's Sustainability Deep Dive for three years now. And that is a bunch of people who are the most concerned about the color palette of the plastic that they're using. And who absolutely want to know if they can use a recycled fiber instead of a regular plastic. Because they still want to do everything else the same, but they want to make it a bit better. But you can see what's within their realm of comfort. And those are the little shifts that we can make today that are completely insufficient. How do you get the big shift? How do you tell a bunch of industrial designers whose entire reason for existing is to take one widget and say, if we add a gadget to this widget, we can make 10 million of them and sell them all. And then we can add a gadget to the gadget to the widget and sell another 10 million of them. And by God, we will make that system efficient and we'll make it easy for the entire assembly process to happen. How do you tell those people that you actually need to make, instead of 10,000 widgets, you actually need to make 1,000, but they need to be the best widgets. You need to slow down. You need to really consider things. And you can see the, the tension between the designer and their ideals and the reality of their commercial demands. And that was something that I uh, that has stuck with me over the years. And I see it in my own uh, dad. I see it in his company. And I see it in designers who are actively involved in, in this uh, industry right now. It's hard to slow down. And you really can't, or rather, you really shouldn't, you shouldn't disparage people for wanting to, yeah. you know, do this thing that mm, their field, society, psychological pressures, neurotransmitters, exactly. like push yeah. them towards uh, doing, you know, it's, it's not, you're not being empathetic if you're saying, yeah. oh, you don't, you drive to work every day when you should, when you could be biking. I still give my coworkers shit uh, <laughs> just to let them know where I stand. But that's, that's, that's been, that's been my whole thing recently thinking about what I could do because as a, as someone that studied uh, life cycle analyses, as someone yeah. who studied um, just the discipline of engineering, I think the version of engineering that I learned in a nutshell, what it taught was how to prioritize. Yeah. And we, we definitely engineers. I think, you know, here's something that I think you can definitely agree on. Um, engineers and designers are taught how to comply with constraints. And, and I think we need, just need to be more okay with putting more severe constraints on. People adjust to constraints very quickly. New normals, easy to get used to. Remember March 2020? Oh, yeah. <laughs> the beginning of the dark times. Uh, yeah, and, but people adjust. And right now, there's a lot of friction to shifting designers and engineers uh, constraints to have not just, you know, profitability first and maybe ease of assembly. That's an easy one. We often want things to go together really nicely. 
so that you don't have as many hiccups in the process of manufacturing. And then instead putting sustainability even before manufacturing. And it becomes a question at that point of, do they know what that is? And, you know, how can we best inform these people who are so good at that way of thinking, who are so good at problem solving, working around constraints, working around constraints and coming up with a hundred different solutions that all comply and are a bit different. And then we pick the best one. So I I think that we can leverage that thinking. Mm -hmm. It's making sure that the scope of the change is made very clear as well. Because we can't just have a, a better fabric on the thing. The thing itself needs to be reconsidered. Do we even need that thing? Now, let's try to be a bit more concrete when, when we talk about these things and gadgets and maybe, yeah. give, maybe give examples. I find that that really helps people who... <laughs> Probably the same people who would have zoned out in the last uh, <laughs> 20 minutes or so of this discussion. But if you're still here, um, kudos. What are the tangible things that we, we can and, and, and should be doing when we talk about changing the priorities, when we talk about creating a new set of constraints that are pro-social, that are pro-environment so that we don't yeah. all drown in 100 years? I'm in like idea generation mode right now. I'm just yeah. thinking about how do we use the blockchain yeah. to encourage people to like, can we make a, how do we apply this quiver of ideas to this? Yeah. And the one thing that I, I think of, so when you're developing electronics and I, I'll stick with my wheelhouse because I know it the best, but we can broaden it somewhat after uh, making a platform is a great way to start. If you can think, yep, we actually need uh, a, a, we need a new cell phone. The company needs a new cell phone. I'm under pressure from various stakeholders to make a new cell phone. But how can we make one that that is more sustainable? How can we make one that does last longer but still fills out many of those needs? Well, what if we made a platform for it? And there was an idea a while ago called Phone Blocks Project Aura. Was it on Kickstarter? Uh, yeah, it was, it was like partially funded by Google or something and it never went anywhere, but Mm -hmm. the idea is sound. Um, I mean, my phone that I use is the Fairphone and it's not, uh, it's not quite a platform, but it is a phone that's designed to be repaired. It's designed to be easily identifiable when you take it apart. There's the battery, there's the camera, whatever. You can pull it out, you can swap them out and theoretically they were going to release more updates for it. And then you could put a better camera in. They did that, but they didn't do anything else. So they didn't put in like a USB 3, um, USB-C mm. interface. They, they left it at USB 2. They didn't allow you to put in a new main board. They didn't change your storage, but would upgrade your CPU. So from a hardware yeah. architecture point of view, that seems awfully difficult. Oh, it is. Because USB 2 to 3 is not just a matter of changing the connector. It's literally the same connector. Yeah. It's the data rate that goes through. Yeah. So you would have to change, uh, you know, probably the PCI interface that's being used and the, uh, you know, the, the USB uh, handler would have to be swapped out entirely. So you would have to have mm-hmm. a modular chipset for, um, for, that, for that entire 
system, subsystem. But things like that are often difficult to do the first time, and they get way easier. So that's a direction that I see serious merit in, and we can take inspiration from things like the desktop computer, which at the best of times, uh, mm-hmm. such as with the AM3 platform, uh, AM3 Plus as well, you've been able to put a new CPU from basically first gen through till I think fifth generation Ryzen processors into the same motherboards because they maintain support. It might be able to last 15 years. So we do know how to make platforms. And of course, the motherboard of a computer is much larger than the main board and daughter boards that are inside of a phone. But I think that we need to consider maybe that we can make a thicker phone. Maybe it has better thermal management and it might not be quite as aesthetically appealing, but it could begin to comply with that idea of making, uh, you know, there's the framework laptop, which came out recently, but that idea of an expandable as well as modular design. Um, I'm a huge fan of sub-assembly based design, and this is this is an example of that. You know, now I I don't really regret the fact that you didn't study electrical engineering. I think I, I'd rather have you be multidisciplinary and think about <laughs> how to you know how to tackle this from multiple points of view, but yet be very well versed in electronics. I, I say this the same way with software. I'm not a programmer but I know a lot about the front end and it's the same thing with um, hardware So I know a lot about the front end. I don't really know how the actual processor functions at a, you know, translating to machine code and whatnot. I know most of the words, but there's enough going on that I, I think that if I can communicate those ideas, then I become valuable to people who are developing those types of hardwares and, and the, uh, the driver softwares and, those base level components. Absolutely. And that's, that's, that's important. You should always be able to speak the same language, even if you're uh, not quite bilingual as the people who you want to influence if you're in a research position. It's invaluable. So it's interesting. You, you said that makes you valuable to, to other people. What is the optimal way to output your value? Hmm. I often thought that I wanted to go into policy. Um, And when I was studying electronic waste, I knew that that was basically the only thing that I could do was policy. And I don't know if that's the right route anymore. I think that there's a lot of value to be had in working directly with engineers. Um, I would love to, so this is more of a want rather than the most optimal scenario, mm-hmm. work in a company for a while, work at uh, Lenovo or Dell or, you know, one of their design offices somewhere in, in North America, ideally in Canada or Europe or something, and be there for the process. And even if I can't influence it too much, learn how the process works so that I can take that information and turn that into regulation if I have to. I think that in the end, my most influential position will probably be in a regulatory capacity, but there are other ways of changing the behavior of corporations like, uh, you know, intercorporate agreements, working in standards organizations. Um, Sounds so sexy, man. Oh, yeah. Man, you can get me going about standards any day of the week. I triple E, baby. But... uh, yeah, things things like that where you have the ear 
of the most stakeholders. Um, I always I view that as a great position, and I'm not sure education obviously seems like a logical next step. You know, I went through the PhD system. I'm going to exit with three degrees and less hair. And when I go into education, well, I'm not sure if that's where I could make the most impact in the next ten years. In the most fifty years, maybe. But uh, as we were talking about earlier, we're we're in a climate crisis. We're not in a climate slow burn. Hmm. That's just what our bodies will be doing. But uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's hard to find the the most optimal scenario. But I think that probably starting an industry and and working with the the kind of communications between industry and design and the OEMs and the engineers, that's where I would make the most impact. I think that's a strong move because yeah. in industry you're going to learn about all these unknown unknowns that. You haven't been privy to up until this point. Precisely.、Uh, and then I also agree that in policy, you probably have the longest lever arm. That you know, with one fell swoop, you're going to be able to put in some legislation potentially. That, for instance, like the one that France just made, where、yes. uh, was it in, in the labeling when you when you purchase electronics, it has、yeah. to show. Some standardized score for repairability, like that's it sounds kind of banal, but it's huge. It's huge.、Yeah. If you're the example they gave in the podcast was if you're in Best Buy and you're looking at a two hundred fifty dollar AirPod versus a two hundred fifty dollar Galaxy Pod, and for all intents and purposes they seem like equivalent products, and one has a one repairability rating and one has a four. Meaning it's rather repairable, and the other one is virtually unrepairable. Yeah, you it's it's something else to make your decision on. And the Indice de Reparabilité de France is a great example of a consumer-oriented system, and that's a great first step. It's really quite fantastic, and I've actually done some research on that system. And unfortunately, there isn't that much data that's been released to people yet,、uh, especially to the kind of there's a there's a score sheet that they have to fill out that results in their repairability score, and there's not a lot of information about what scores they got in what sections. I believe a lot of the companies want to keep that private,、hmm. but of the information that I have found, it's interesting to note that the average cell phone score across the board is about. Six point five to seven, but we can see that Apple's average score is about six point three, so they're they're below average, and it means that as you say, people can make a quick decision. That's really valuable today because I get phone calls from people who I met in high school asking me if a certain laptop is better than another one, and I always think we've made this information so opaque. That they can't even decide between a laptop based on performance, let alone based on repairability, because it has all the same stats as the one beside it. But one of them has to be better, and you know, in many cases, you'll you'll know this in depth. But thermal performance is a very large concern when it comes to computing,、mm-hmm. and if somebody wants to buy a very thin and light laptop that has the same specs as a chunky laptop, like my laptop's a Dell Precision, and it is thick. Like three C's, yeah. Several. It's, it's got at least three.、Um, the Dell Precision is going to perform better because it has more thermal capacity. 
but that's not something that's communicated to users very well. So yeah, the that index uh, is a great first step and can also lead to more aggressive regulatory actions like saying, okay, in the next five years, you can't get a one. You have to figure out a better way to do it. So now that we've all agreed that this system exists, we're going to roll the standard. We're going to make it more aggressive. That's right. And then you begin to push the cogs of the design thinkers with another constraint. That's right. And we like to see that. Yeah. So I, I see this as just adding numbers to a world that is incredibly opaque. Yes. It's, I guess, an analogy I can think of is fuel efficiency, fuel economy with vehicles. Yeah. You know, that's been around since time. But people... It was in the 90s that the EPA came up with the... Oh, it's that recent? Raining. Yeah, like, I... Fuel economy has always existed as a concept, but I think that we standardized the reporting of it on the, the US EPA. How you have like a highway number and a yeah. city number, and there's probably some standard way of... The, yeah, the, of... the methodology was standardized. Then. Right. Okay. Okay. A bit more recent than I expected, but that's that's been around. But people, for the most part, probably didn't really care you know, if the price a, of gas was low enough. Exactly. Yeah. And then now you're twisting people's arms, you know, with yeah. the price of gas doubling in the last like year. Um, so as someone who is obsessed with metrics, as someone who is obsessed with quantifying things and comparing things and optimizing for A or B or whatever, I think I am already someone who's probably out of distribution uh, in the general population. Yes. And if you have the vast majority of people who are more apathetic to these sort of things and you have this layer of opacity, how could they make the better decision for the environment? Yeah. You've removed their agency to make a better decision. And in many cases, it's very much on purpose that we don't attach metrics to these things. Um, some of the work that my uh, supervisor is doing with another student is uh, quantifying how much e-waste we make in Canada because we only have estimates. There aren't even hard numbers that are really reported. And if they are reported, then they're kept in silos of information. Mm -hmm. We know, uh, and I don't entirely agree with this, but you can't affect what you can't measure kind of thing. You know, we, we know what the bad actions are. We can make design changes today that we know will have good impacts on e-waste tomorrow. But we don't actually know how much e-waste we make because we've never bothered to really measure it. And it's quite a privatized system in Canada. Uh, so what do we do? You know, uh, nobody's ever considered that the design had such a huge impact before. Or even if we did know, which we do, we've never really measured it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah... Uh, Giving as much agency as possible to individuals, but I would say even with a bit of a leading agency, like give them a decision, but really lead them in the direction that is the most sustainable. You, you nudge them. Yeah, exactly. In economics, that's the oh, that's, that's actually a, that's the technical the, term. Is a nudge. Okay. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about practical call to actions. I, I oh yeah, okay. So let's reduce the, the, the what can you do today? What can you do today? The patented 
call to action. It's, it's actually not patent, but by me, it's the other podcast. But <laughs> <laughs> what can the average Joe do? You know, someone that lives yeah. in, let's take our example, someone that lives in Kitchener, Waterloo, you know, maybe they are our age. They don't have a family yet. They probably yeah. have a car. They probably are omnivorous. They probably yep. have an office job that they work hybrid in. Just a standard person. Yeah. So let's let's start uh, broad and get and get specialized so that I can I can speak to this directly. Broad, broad strokes for sustainability are dematerialize your dopamine hits. Let's get back to drugs. Um, if you can find enjoyment in life, in doing things that are based on human interaction and not on material interaction, you are doing well. Um, to quote a famous person who I can't remember the name of, most of your impact is determined by your postcode and your income bracket. You can't do too much about that because the power grid that we live in in Ontario is pretty clean. So no matter how much energy you use, it's not ever going to compare in carbon, uh, you know, carbon impact to a place in Alberta that burns coal. But if you can make sure that instead of going on a road trip that's all about driving really far and then, you know, renting a hotel and using those kinds of services, if you can instead stay fairly local, bike to a location uh, and, and camp and just spend a lot of time with your friends, uh, you know, playing music and enjoying artistic activities, you're going to start to disassociate those activities of high consumption with pleasure over time. Hell, even things like watching movies at home is better than perhaps going out and spending a whole lot of money on a dinner or even cooking dinner at home might be more efficient than going out to some restaurants just because of the way that the systems are, are configured. So that's one thing that like at a very high level, if you want to focus more on, on having fun and being happy, which is so important, sustainability is at its very core about people. We mm. still need to be happy. If you can move away from consuming things to be happy to instead having activities, of course, you're going to still need to eat food and all that kind of stuff. You're going to need to wear clothes. You're going to need to get to the places yes. to see your friends. But if the primary activity is your friends, you know, if the primary activity is walking through nature or seeing something, mm. you're moving in the right direction. I love that, actually. That's, that's actually top. Try to rein in your dopamine addiction to, in particular, material obsessions. Yeah. We call this decoupling. At the, this is an economics term, the carbon decoupling. If the real economy can increase without increasing carbon emissions, we are decoupling. And if you can, as your own internal economy of happiness... And that includes earning money and all that stuff. It's all the equation to make you a happier person. If you can try to decarbonize that, and often people don't know exactly what causes carbon, but it's stuff causes carbon to be emitted. I think that's really, that's bold. And then if we look at things that we own, that we have to own, we need a phone or a laptop, that kind of thing. Get the most durable one. 
get a long-lasting premium product, um, although warranties are kind of sketchy at the best of times. Get something which has a good warranty. Uh, if you sit at home most of the time for your work, but you feel like you need a laptop, have a good sit down and maybe um, put a post-it note where you actually put your laptop throughout the day and figure out if you actually can get a, a desktop that's going to last you 12 years instead. Because if you only actually use your laptop in two places in your house, it's not that much of a stretch to get a nicer chair and sit in one place and then have a device that will last much longer. Things like that. Uh, I think make a make a very large difference over the medium term of like five to ten years. That's great. That's great. I love it, Carl. Thank you. This is uh, enlightening. Thank you for inviting me over, and uh, thank you for doing what you do. Well, thank you. Do you have any parting remarks? Is there anything that you would hope people would look into? Any resources you'd like? That, that might be standard reading for mm. someone who is concerned about their environmental impact? Sure. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give a shout out to the engineers right now. There are handbooks on sustainable product design, and there are a couple that are called the Handbook of Sustainable Product Design. So I encourage readers uh, to go out there and, and find that literature a lot of it is available for free. Um, there's some core literature like hmm, Cradle to Cradle is an approachable book about an architect and a chemical engineer who talk about product design. I'm not sure how much use somebody would get out of that on their day-to-day, -day, but it's a good story. It's about how they uh, design better systems that are more efficient overall and are somewhat regenerative. I think that the main reading that most people can do is learn about how their built environment works and especially learn about the things that you own and use the most. Try to learn how they work. Maybe read a manual, look at a diagram, go out of your comfort zone a little bit. If you've never repaired something before, you know, don't look up how to fix your TV, but maybe look up how, you know, how to pop off the back of your phone. Just 10 minutes of reading. And you can see something that's probably pretty unique about something that you already have and you hold in your hand. And uh, never underestimate the value of understanding how things work. Listening again to this relatively long and mostly unabridged conversation, I'm astounded at how many powerful ideas Carl introduced to me. From comparing expectations for a cell phone to a fridge, to viewing consumption of material goods as an addictive dopamine hit that we should try to avoid. I'm glad we have the smart cookie dedicating himself to researching such an important topic. There is unlikely to be a silver bullet in solving, quote unquote, this climate crisis. There's not going to be a single miraculous invention of a machine or something that's going to undo all the damage that we've done to the earth and continue to do. It's going to have to come from a lot of cumulative change in legislation, in technology, and also in culture. And it's also going to take time. Every idea and incremental step in the positive direction is going to start 
with having a breadth of knowledge, which comes from, as Carl said and embodies himself, being curious and learning about the world around us. Excellent words to live by. Thanks for listening to Pardon My Passion.